Refracted Light is a podcast dedicated to discussing the good, the true, and the beautiful displayed in the world. My name is Timothy Nargi, and I'm your host. I'm a photographer and amateur historian, and an Inklings, especially Lewis and Tolkien enthusiast, and I'm seeking to share such stories that display goodness, truth, and beauty in the world. Today on the podcast, I have my good friend and colleague, Ben Andrus. We both work in the multimedia industry. Ben has a major in English literature and also a graduate studies in film. So with my background in inkling studies and my interest in Tolkien and our combined backgrounds of multimedia and editing and film and etc., I thought it would be good to discuss an article that Tolkien scholar Tom Shippey wrote entitled, Tolkien and Jackson Book to Script. The article analyzes some of the decisions the filmmakers made in adapting Tolkien's work for the screen. So let's listen in. There might be uh, some background noise. I've got some cicadas and some a little bit of traffic here and there. But Let's just go through the document. Okay. You read the whole thing? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. So what did you think of it? I thought it was really good. I thought it was a, a really great essay. Um, uh, Tom Shippey knows more about Tolkien than um, he's actually he's probably for- forgotten more about Tolkien than I've ever known. <laughs> so uh, and and I think he just made a lot of really excellent points about uh, the movies and the you know the whole point of the article was to to determine whether or not the core of the narrative was the same across the mediums. You know, I, now I'm trying to remember what his conclusion was. Did he seem to think that the core was the same? See, that's why I wasn't 100% sure if he had come to a conclusion about... Because he starts off, he starts off the, uh, the essay with a quote from Tolkien, the canons of narrative art in any medium cannot be wholly different. And then Shippey says, uh, Professor Tolkien, but actually when you say the canons of narrative art cannot be wholly different, I agree with you, agree with you but can't they be very different or slightly different or rather different? What we like to know is how different is it possible for them to be? And he doesn't, I don't think he answers that question. Mm. He demonstrates how the films are different and he gives reasons why they are different, which we can talk about in a minute. But I don't know if he actually answers that question. Right, right. Um, and yeah, maybe he was, it was just more posing the question since uh, there had been so much controversy. I mean, he says right up at the beginning of the the article, um, I guess it was a speech that was transcribed, but uh, he, that there were two kinds of viewers. There was the lady who had watched it 51 times and had, I guess, some sort of transcendent experience watching the movie. And uh, then there were the, the other people, the Tolkien fans, who were picking it apart, nitpicking to see what had been wrong in the movies. And uh, I guess in light of those two uh, polls, he was posing this question about whether or not the, the narrative core was, was the same. Yeah. Do you think it's the same? It's so close. I think there are things that are very close about it. I don't know that I can say it's the same. I, I think, I think and, and to go back to the article, I think he kind of makes a couple of really great points about this that sort of make me think that they're not quite the same. And, and one of those points is that uh, the structure of the book has its own 
its own theme, its own message, just in the structure. He's, he talks about how, uh, and, and the, the way he has the structure enmeshed, you know, between the, the chapters, between the parts of the, the books, are there to illustrate that uh, these characters, however wise or intelligent they are, um, they don't get it right. They, you know, he brings up especially the the Palantir and, and uh, you know, characters look into the Palantir and they make decisions based on what they see. What they see in the Palantir is accurate, but they come to the wrong conclusions. Uh-huh. And then in, in the movie, he's saying that that it's a source of information almost just to move the plot. Right, right. Exactly. That's exactly, exactly right. So, so that would be one uh, thing that I would say that the movies just do, cannot, by, by virtue of the fact that they're movies and not books, it's impossible for them to have that same um, thematic structure and to uh, reveal the, you know, another kind of message in, the, in their structure simply by the, the impossibility of, of executing the, the movie in the same way. And, and the other thing I'd say uh, is that, and he's right about this too, that the books are simply more sorrow, sorrowful than the movies. The books, uh, the, the, but in the book, there is a, you know, there is a triumph, but it's always tempered. It's tempered by this, this slow decline that Tolkien, uh, you know, talked about and his other writings. Aragorn is the, it's probably the last of the, the kings. His issue has become, when we read the append, appendices, we come to find that he only has one issue, and we don't know what happens after that. The, the reign of the elves are departing. They, their time is, is over. It's the time of men. And, you know, and Tolkien is also explicit at the very beginning of the books that, that hobbits, we don't see them anymore they they've they've become more hidden so i think i think that there is uh I, I don't think the the movies quite um communicate that do you think that's a failure of the movies or just the the nature of the medium you know film versus book right right well that's an excellent question um i think it is a uh consequence of the movie industry yeah I think it's a consequence of the movie of the movie industry, the consequence of uh, all the other factors that go into production, into budgets, advertising, which Chippy mentions in the the article as well. Getting an audience at the time of the movies uh, came out. I mean, I don't think uh, you know the audience was not just Tolkien fans, was not just Lord of the Rings. Fans. I don't know that if Lord of the Rings fans had, at that time, only been the ones to see the movie, whether or not it would have been as successful as it was without a more general audience. Yeah, and you could see how, you know, Jackson plays up the fight scenes and extends them. Right, and, right. And he, right. he has that uh, right. couple quotes, uh, hey, you know, if we try and do that special effects, uh, guys will murder us, so we got to have them in the right places, got to make it a big action scene. So, I mean, that goes back to, again, the, the medium is the message. So that's formulating some of their decision-making and how they want to adapt the, the, the story. So, and then elsewhere he mentions uh, it's a film for teenagers. Which I didn't, I didn't 100% agree with that. 
mostly because uh, unless they're older teenagers, they don't have money to go to the movies on their own. Well, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah. I, well, I mean, that just, you could say the same thing about the books and people have. Yeah. The, those books are just for teenagers. Yeah. And, or, or fantasy books in general are just for teenagers or for just for kids. For a very long, I actually just learned this today. If, uh, for a very long time, it was difficult for publishers to um, sell or or to market adventure stories, adventure or fantasy stories to adults. It was considered a kids' medium and um, you know a, a child's genre. So, did uh, however you discovered this? Did they say when the switch occurred or how it occurred? Um, trying to remember. Now, I think that it had to do with, uh, with Dune. I think it had to do with Dune. Now, Frank Herbert was able to get a automotive publisher to publish Dune. And um, that kind of, kind of broke the ice for science fiction. Dune was in... Fantasy. When was Dune? In the I, 80s? I think it was 1961. Oh, 61. It was published. Yeah. Oh, all right. The first set of movies was in the 80s, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think okay. So. I'm getting the timelines mixed up. All right. So, you know when he mentions uh, Aragorn and Faramir, how he made the changes? Yeah. Yes. He's talking about like the zigzag and mm-hmm. they're on, you know, Aragorn's on the way to Helm's Deep and then he gets waylaid and then eventually ends up at Helm's Deep. And then right. Faramir, Faramir is on his way to uh, Isilion. Then they take, take some of the, takes the hobbits to Osgiliath. Then they go right. back to Athelion. Right. And, you know, uh, his, his reasoning is, it, I think his reasoning is sound, but I also think he missed a key point there. And this, I think, comes back to the, the discussion that, the, you know, the medium is the message. And so film has a different outlook. Um, you know, it's Aragorn who warns Theoden that the Urukai are coming in the movies, but not in the books. I can't remember exactly who it is in the books, but it's not Aragorn. And that's like a symptom of uh, movies have to have a smaller world than the books. In The Fellowship of the Ring in the movie, it's Arwen who saves Frodo. But in the book, it's uh, Glorfindel. And you don't see him much in the book. And so that kind of goes, you know, tying this back into what Shippy was saying is, it's like the movie has to be smaller so that it can be more focused and that audiences don't get confused or distracted or, you know, disinterested. And, um, you know, with Arwen replacing Gorfindel, who doesn't show up too much in the book, but Arwen actually doesn't show up as much in the book as she does in the movies, but they bring her forward into the movies, and so they take other minor characters and give parts and pieces to her. And then he brings up, especially with Arwen, that they had to put her in the second movie, so audiences didn't forget her when she showed up in the third, which I I had not considered that before. That's the first time I'd seen that argument. Yeah, yeah, that was a good. I mean, I, I think uh, to your point, I think I've very often uh, just really hated Farmer's character in the movies so much. I think this is a general complaint of most fans, um, and that was the first time I had ever heard a really rational reason for changing his character. That his character needed a journey, and mm-hmm. the filmmakers were trying to give every character a journey to change, to have a change. I thought that was kind of interesting. It doesn't make me really change my mind about the 
<laughs> yeah, about the the switch, but it it, it kind of gave left me with a reason. So yeah, and so we could talk about like the journey, and that almost seems to be the ship becomes alludes to it a, a modern thing. You know, you won't mm-hmm. you don't see it in the book. So right. a couple examples is in the books, Aragorn knows he's the king, and right. doesn't quite shy away from it as much as he does in the books or in the movies. Sorry, in the movies he's got to like own it, and he has this angst about it, and that's his journey. Faramir's journey is to not, he's in his, in the, in the films, he's in his brother's shadow, he's in Boromir's shadow, and, uh, but he doesn't right. fall for the ring. He almost does, but he gives it up, mm-hmm. so that's his journey. And then Sam, well, this is, to me, this is even worse than Faramir's change, I think. You know, in the, in the movies where Sam, like, turns back, turns away, you know, mm-hmm. and I didn't, I still don't. I wish Shippy would address that because I don't see any justification for that decision at all. Because Sam like jumps into the river to you know to go with Frodo when they part when Frodo's trying to go to Mount Doom on his own, and Sam jumps in the water and he can't even swim, and he's going after his master, and then he sticks with him the whole time and always has hope, and then in the movie you know Gollum tricks Frodo to send Sam away, and then Sam just kind of like oh, okay I'm out of here yeah yeah. Uh, I don't want to go, but okay, if you tell me so, Master. And then he goes, and then he sees the breadcrumbs and turns back around. I don't see why they did that, because Sam is supposed to be the... He's really the hero of it, of the story, the constant. And despite that little mess-up, I think, he's the same character throughout the whole... All of them. Like, he's he's the only constant. And I don't see... Is, is that them trying to add a little journey for him? And, like, one, two, one or two scenes? I don't. I still don't get the why they did it. Just to add some drama there. I, I don't manufactured drama. Maybe you know. I'd have to go back and watch the scene again. I think you know. I think, but it's. Uh, I mean, I think that's probably to, as you said, to give the character a journey. Um, but it's so short. Yeah. It's like three scenes. I yeah. mean, there's the tension between uh, Sam and Gollum that they that they right. build up to that point where. Frodo sends Sam away, and it maybe right. maybe it's to highlight Frodo's corruption more of the ring. Mm. I yeah, mm. I still don't really get that decision. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it's to uh, the the conflict between the three between Gollum, uh, Frodo, and Sam had to go somewhere. They had to arrive at some point. Maybe that's what they were trying to do. Yeah, I, just, I don't know, because it, it, it seems like it has a natural resolution when they realize they've been tricked. Right. It takes them to Shelob's lair, and so you know you can't you know, trust Gollum anymore. I guess the only thing I can think of, if I remember correctly in the books, is that Sam is kind of chasing Frodo silently through the corridors, and the orcs, mm-hmm. have, the orcs have got him, and he almost catches up with them, and they slam the door. And he can't get through the door. And they kind of change it maybe so that Sam can have his like his little speech to Frodo when he's stunned by the spider. He gives that little speech right before he um right before he fights the spider. I mean that's the only thing I can think of to try to add some more emotion into all that. Yeah. I mean, I'd have to go back and watch it. I think you're always told when you're writing a screenplay to introduce tension in every scene you know introduce conflict in every scene it might have just been uh, a writing you know just a writing 
viewers uh, interested, you know, adding conflict. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's just the one thing I can't quite figure out. Anything else that stood out to you? Yeah, you know, I think one thing that I, yeah, uh, one thing, and I kind of mentioned this before uh, we, before we uh, started recording, um, one thing that Tom Shippey does that I really appreciate is that he takes Tolkien very seriously and he takes everything about the books very seriously. He doesn't just, any narrative oddities, anything that Tolkien did differently that some people might think was, were, was uh, wrong or amateurish or uh, unnecessary. Shippy takes it very seriously and provides a very plausible reason for why Tolkien did it. Not just a good reason or a plausible reason, but a reason that really contributes to the overall narrative, makes it an even deeper work of art. Um, as And just like we were saying before, just the, the narrative choices that the, the structural choices that Tolkien makes also impart a theme too, a message as well. Yeah. And I, I think it, that's easy to miss if you're not really paying attention. Right. I mean, that's the, as soon as, when the fellowship splits up, it's really almost like two different stories. There's Frodo's story right, and then yeah. everyone else's story. Right. And that's how he has it in the structure of the book. But I, when, he's, when he was talking about the diagram and the zigzagging and he couldn't even diagram mm -hmm. it out, I mean, to me, that's right. like, the genius of Tolkien that he could keep it all straight. Right. That he has these two stories that are going on at the same time, but the, the reader doesn't uh, get access to parts of the story until certain, you know, certain pages in the book. Right. And you get f right. things filled in over time. And, and that, you know, that's the, the bait that keeps bringing you on. You want to keep reading and find out what's going to happen or what happened to these people. And it works in a book. I think, right. I think you can, it's fine to split up the structure instead of going, you know, all the odd chapters are Frodo and all the even chapters are Aragorn, you know, instead of right. flipping back and forth, right. which is how the movie is kind of structured. There's, there's right. no way that mo the movies would work if they kept the same structure as the book. Right. <laughs> Just, right. you know, yeah. an hour and a half of Aragorn and then an hour and a half of Frodo, it wouldn't. Right. <laughs> right. So I, right, we yeah yeah it wouldn't hold people's attention. Right, and the nature of editing lends itself for you know the cross cutting to work. I mean, audiences have been conditioned for that type of editing for you know fifty years or more. Oh yeah, yeah. So it works, and I think that's yeah. in one sense that's a, a necessary choice. It does change some of the story the the story up a well. It doesn't change the story, but it changes how you how the story is revealed. So that's interesting how the how the structure even changes the timeline almost. Well, and, and right, keeping all that straight, uh, I mean, it's pretty interesting. That's pretty incredible. Oh, you know, one thing I'd love to see though, as Chippy mentions the screenplay that Tolkien marked up. <laughs> I can't remember the screenwriter's name now. It was like Zimmerman or something. Zimmerman, yeah. Yeah, and I was man, it's he said it's a historical document. I'd love to see what he yeah. wrote on that, that screenplay. I bet it's hilarious. It's, uh, it's at Marquette University. I might have yeah. to take a trip just to look at the... <laughs> Yeah. Right. I mean, but Tolkien was pretty scathing sometimes. Right. And, oh, and yeah. Some, I mean, towards yeah. some of his, um, his critiques of Lewis's work, it's pretty scathing. Well, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And their friendship really took it took kind of a toll because of yeah. that. You know, I think they, they patched well, things up. I think that's up, but... just his character as a writer. 
where he was so mm-hmm. meticulous. That's why it took him forever to get things done. If it ever got done, he was so meticulous. Right. You know, there's that... Um, have you read Leaf by Niggle? Yeah. So he's always yeah. niggling, doing little things and never really finishing, you know, the whole right. tree. Whereas Lewis, right. apparently he could write his... He could almost write his final draft in his first pass. But then right. you kind of look at Narnia and, you know, the world of Narnia is not as fleshed out as the world of Middle Earth. I just wonder if his reviews weren't that he... I mean, sometimes he did write he absolutely hated stuff, but I wonder if it was more of his approach to writing, that he wasn't as generous to other styles of writing as Lewis might have been. So are you, are you a purist, or whatever goes is okay? As, Which side? As far as, as what? Like adapting... Oh, words. adapting screenplays? No, I mean uh, adapting Tolkien. Adapt, adapting Tolkien. Um, well, you know, I think you know that's an excellent question. I think uh, you know the mediums are just so different. You just like we were saying. Um, I think you, there are some things you have to uh, when you're adapting something to a, a screenplay. I think there are just some things that you have to give up. I mean, Tom Bombadil. I just don't know if that was going to work in a movie. I just don't. I just don't know for, and especially for audiences audiences at the time i mean he's just so weird it's great it's great i love tom bombadil uh you know he's like he's wonderful but uh it's it's so it's almost absurd it it just comes out of nowhere too in the in the books it seems um and it opens up also opens up a whole lot of other questions because you know tom bombadil just when he puts on the ring, he just spins it around his finger and nothing happens. So <laughs> right. like th- that kind of breaks the tension a little bit as far as the ring is concerned. So, uh, you know, I think, I think you, I'm not, I want to say I'm a purist. I don't think it's even possible to, to be one. Um, Do you but, think his category, you think his cate- his categories are not valid because of the translation? You always, you know, like if you translate from Greek, from Hebrew or Greek to English and you lose because of the word, the sentence structure, or even cultural idioms, you lose something. So you never get a pure... There's no such thing as a one-to-one translation. You, you think that's... I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to get as close as you can. Yeah. Um, I think you have to get as close as you can. But, you know, lang- language like is like that to begin with. When I say the word tree, it conjures up an in- image, but it doesn't get to exactly what a tree is. You know, I just don't think... Language gets uh, gets to the thing. I just don't think you can get there exactly. There's always going to be a little bit of dis- distance between the word and the object. I think that's just sort of the nature of it. You can get as close as, as you can, but it's just not going to... Do you disagree? No, no, I think I agree. I think, uh, I think I would strive to adapt it as faithfully as I could, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever the source material is. Right. But I think... The, the nature of the medium of film. So if you, you've, well, so, I mean, there's so many factors. If you only get a, a budget for one film and you got a book that is really needs two films, mm-hmm. what do you do? Do you not make the film or do you change things in, in a certain way to get it all in one film? So there's, there's translation decisions you have to make. So for example, um, he talks about the the time the time crunch you know it's really like oh man i don't know tolkien purists listen to this because i can't remember the numbers in the books from when uh gandalf kind of has suspicions that the ring is the one ring and he goes off to research it and then comes back 
it's a really long time in the books. In the movies, it's implied it maybe a week. Right. If that, in the movies? There's a lot of time compression, like huge amount of time compression. Yeah, yeah. And, and then even uh, Fro- when Frodo decides to leave the Shire and goes to Brandywine or, or Bree, you know, that takes mm-hmm. time too. And I mean, that, and, you know, Tolkien's kind of stalling when he's writing. He's trying to figure out where he's going to go with it. But still, in the movies, it's like, boom, going fast. So those changes have to, uh, you don't want the film to drag. And I think he quotes Jackson in there about the Council of Elrond, where in, in the book, it's like a, you know, Shippy says it's like a committee meeting. But I also think it's, uh, there's some excellent writing there, how he brings all the, the threads together for the reader. Um, but Jackson's like, we can't have committee meeting. That would destroy the, the pacing of the film. So they have to, you know, decrease the number of people at the council. They have to have the main uh, characters speak and do things instead of the secondary characters. So again, you've got the world shrinking again in, in film. But the same information comes across that we learn off in the book. And they put some of it at the front of the film. But it's still we get still get the same information, and it's restructured in such a way. So I would try to adapt it as closely as I could, and try to keep the source material the same. I don't know if I would ever create a whole new character. If I created a new character, there might be composites of existing characters, but they would still be based on characters that are, already exist. Nothing created from my own mind, because it's not really my work. I'm just adapting it. But uh. There have to be some changes because you're you're translating from one medium to another. It's just the nature of the medium. And you know, it really is almost like two different languages, honestly. I mean, the things you can do in a book, things you can say in a book are so much different than the things you can say in a movie. You know, I'm just like obvious the most obvious example is that in a book you have to spend a couple of pages describing the setting sometimes to place the characters where in a movie you can show it in two seconds you can show the setting you know and uh so that's obviously just it's like so it's just like you know in german they have so many different words for things that we don't have you know and there are languages you know they say the inuit have however many words for snow you can with certain languages you can just describe about things in a different way, uh, you know, anyway. So that only just to illustrate my point that there really are two different languages, film and, and you know, fiction writing, literature. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, different languages. Because it, I guess people see, or maybe people are assuming that there's not really that much difference between the two. And so you can, uh, oh, they made this change, how dare they? Right. Right? So that's kind of interesting trying to, see some of their rationale you know like like we both said i didn't realize that the rationale for the Fairmere stuff and the aragorn mm-hmm. was they needed a journey right i mean now knowing that okay i i can appreciate that i don't agree sure. with it I right wish they wouldn't have made it but but it doesn't seem so ad hoc like they're just doing yes. it to yes and that's you know. what i think people are reacting to yeah. until we see the first couple episodes of the rings of power I mean, all this, they're like, who's this character? This character's nowhere in the, in the lore. So why are they... So again, is it a composite character? That I might be okay with, depending on how it's done. But if it's completely made up, like, why? 
So that's, that's my guess is beside the woke stuff. I think people are also reacting to that it's not following the, the lore that's already been established. Right. Well, you know, they're already sort of on their, their back foot with it, Amazon, because they're, they, they only have rights to the, to the appendices. To, they don't have rights to the Cimmerillion or any of the other work. So I think they're already kind of on, on the bad end of the stick. And that's what I was kind of saying earlier. Like, I have a book that should, should really be done in two movies, but they're only going to give me one. And they've kind of got, Amazon's kind of got the reverse. Like, they have, they, have, they have half of the content to do a show, but they really need all this more content to do the show properly. And so should they even do the show in the first place? Right, right. They're, they're spreading like an hour's worth of work over, you know, five years of... <laughs> and, yeah. Right. That's what Jackson did with the Hobbit movies. Yeah. yeah. Right. Oh yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So you know, some just on a brief aside about that is I I have done some reading about that and you know Guillermo del Toro was supposed to direct it for a mm-hmm. while mm-hmm. and then I guess it went in production hell and he backed out for whatever reason and Jackson yeah. kind of stepped up as as I as I've read it he stepped up and kind of took over with you know at last minute so I kind of I don't know I can kind of see why some decisions were rushed or made a certain way. But then I also like, no, I also see his relationship with James Cameron and he had to push the, the 3D 48 frames per second thing. And it was supposed to be two movies and they made a third. And I'm like, eh, dude, I don't know. That should have been yeah. one three hour, three hour movie. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe put seen... an intermission in it, put an intermission in it in the middle. I don't like... even think you need that. Have you seen the, the Hobbit edit? Or the, the Tolkien edit of The Hobbit? No, no, no. That, <laughs> is it on YouTube somewhere? It's somewhere on YouTube or oh, something. Man, someone funny. took someone took all three films and did as best they could in the edit and just basically kept what's in The Hobbit. Wow. And it's actually pretty solid. Right. It's actually a pretty solid film. And if Jackson did that, he would have another winner, I think. Yeah, you should go look it up. It's actually pretty clever. I'll check it out. Yeah. yeah that's funny. But even I think about that, you know, there's a couple things in those movies where in the movies, the dwarves, you know, they do their, they do this stupid sequence where they're like activating the, the ore mine again or something, which basically forces the dragon out of the mountain. But then he take, attacks Lake Town and then Bard kills him. So, but it's ultimately like the dwarves and Bilbo's actions that force the dragon's death, that cause the dragon's death. In the book, it's not like that at all. He just gets angry that they're snooping around the mountain, goes goes flying around to go burn up who he can burn up, and it's not really as a direct result of the dwarves' actions that get Smog killed. And so they change that in the film. And again, I think that's—I don't think they had to do it, but I wonder if that's part of their thinking of the you know the medium again is the message that we need our primary characters to not be passive; they have to be active. They have to drive the narrative where character and plot intersect. And in the book, you don't, you don't, I don't think you have to have those same rules that we typically have in film. You know, I don't think you have, and especially in these, I almost hate to even apply the word fantasy novel to to Tolkien's stuff, because it really is, and what he wanted to do, and it was, as far as I know, was to have myths and make myths. And I think the rules don't necessarily apply for myths i don't think you would apply the same rules to the odyssey or the iliad or 
the um, the, the sagas or you know i just don't it's not the same yeah you wouldn't call those myths right what yeah yeah you're saying the odyssey and the the northern sagas they was would not be myths i would say they are they would be myths oh, they and are that, myths. yeah, yeah okay, and yeah. the the rules don't apply the the yeah. same rules for a you know a movie would not apply to those myths and i would i would want to put tolkien's i would, would want to put the lord of the rings and the other work in that myth category you know instead of fantasy instead of fantasy yeah that's a really good point i I don't know when it was it when was it termed a fantasy genre like since the beginning you know i i think you know i I don't know honestly i don't i don't know but i think before i mean i'm just trying to think of what came before tolkien as far as like contemporary fantasy work and um you know i don't you know there i i guess uh so you almost had you had fairy tales. You had fairy tales, yeah, right. Which I but think I would if... that would be in the same category as myth, though, right? I mean, fairy tales would. I'm I think George, some of them, like uh, George MacDonald and or yeah. um, Alice in Wonderland, or um, although that might be more fantasy than. Yeah, I don't know anything. if that's a myth. Um, I you... Yeah, but I that, that'd be something to look up. Yeah. When was the term fantasy coined? And right. I mean, everyone considers Tolkien the the you know the standard of fantasy, right? But well, and it? and everyone that came after him, you know, they're just <laughs> yeah, really trying so hard. To, it's, it, it's so hard yeah. to read any fantasy. It is insane. besides yeah. Tolkien. Yeah, it's just like this is so bad, or it's yeah. just like okay, it's okay, but it's right. not Tolkien, right? Well, and, and you can see that they they encounter the, some of the same problems that that Tolkien did in writing. I mean, there's the same meandering at the beginning. Where are these characters going? What am I doing? Why am I even writing this? <laughs> and uh, right. you know, wait, wait, you know, until they kind of get their their wings a little bit. You know, uh, Tolkien just does it in a much uh, more um, uh, he just does it in a much more aesthetically pleasing and beautiful way. You know, he's just more adept at it than they are. I was reading, um, I don't know if you ever read uh, Tad Williams. Uh, oh, um, yeah. Like, did you ever read The Dragon Bone Chair? Or, um, no, but I know what you're talking about. You know what about. I'm talking about? Yeah. So, like, the, <laughs> the character, like, he, like, the first 200 pages of that book is, like, just, uh, it, it, nothing really happens. I mean, he's just, and the character, the, he really is struggling. You can just tell he's really just struggling to figure out where he's going to go with this. And uh, he spends about 200 pages trying to get there. And just uh, some of the decisions he makes with the characters are just like so boring, so obnoxious. But anyway. Well, he's definitely a rare genius. And he just spent so much time, you know, building the uh, the language. You know, right. Well, yeah, actual languages, but you know, right. the language, the rules and the structure of the world. Right. Right. That he was trying to tell his story. And he just spent so much time that... Uh, I still haven't seen anyone match it. I mean, everyone wants to compare Harry Potter to it. I'm like, that's not even a comparison. Yeah, I don't think that is a fair. It's not. I mean, it's just not. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I haven't really read all the Harry Potter books, so I can't really say. But and and like I, you know, again, the aim, uh, the themes, and the aim of these post-Tolkien works are different than what Tolkien was trying to accomplish and what he did accomplish and what he was trying to say. It just, they're just different. Um, 
some are better than others, you know. Um, but I just the, the aim of uh, a series like Game of Thrones is just so different than uh, Lord of the Rings. Just um, yeah, I mean, I, I've never I read those books, but well, I didn't read the book. I mean, I read about them because yeah. I was interested, but then it seems like the whole story is who's going to be in power. Right. Yeah. From what my understanding, is, yeah. is is getting rid of this powerful item. I mean, it's completely antithetical. Like someone was trying to, because I was having a conversation about um, the, you know, the differences between the two works. And someone had actually read both. So I can't speak with authority, but he was saying that, you know, Martin's world building was pretty good. And that, well, my argument was he was just, you know, everyone's just fighting for power. What a, what a shallow thing to fight over. Or what a shallow theme to be, you know, the central theme of your books. And the guy's point I was talking to is, well, Martin's point is to show the, the depravity of, of a world and of people and things like that. To show evil and wickedness and how low people can go. And I'm like, okay, I can, I can see that. But man, I wonder if you're going to be reading this story 100 years from now. Because <laughs> there's enough evil and depravity in, in the world. And I don't need a I don't need a story to tell me that we want we want a story with heroes to look up to that'll get a charge of escapism which you know Lewis has a great answer for why <laughs> why stay in a jail when you you know there's freedom out there <laughs> <laughs> right yeah well that's yeah that's exactly right and someday maybe I'll pick up Game of Thrones just to see um, but you know I I don't know I I sent you that one podcast a few weeks ago. I don't know if you ever get a chance to Oh, to no, it's on, my it. list. it's on my list. You know, it's really pretty good. I think, you know, their, their conclusion, I'll just spoil it, their conclusion is that Martin's, uh, his, his aim failed, his work failed, simply because he just didn't complete it. He, <laughs> and he's not interested in completing it, and because he's just making so much money being an entertainer, I guess. But... And, and but they they describe some other reasons why it failed too, um, mm-hmm. and why it's a failure, and why Tolkien's work is a success. It wasn't just that, but um, yeah, I don't know. So um, is 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 a failure because he didn't complete it? Yeah, it's a failure. He didn't complete it, and just like he didn't, uh, and and yeah, he that's no, and he obviously has no interest in completing it, and. There's nowhere for the story to really go. So um, he doesn't want to. Com- he doesn't want to complete it because he doesn't have to. Like he um, yeah, or or he doesn't have. Yeah, I guess he just doesn't have any interest in doing it. I mean, that's interesting. If 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 those motives are true and and correct, you know, Tolkien always struggled with uh, sharing his work and and finishing it, not because he didn't want to, because it, it was so big. And he also didn't consider some of his early stuff good enough. I mean, those are totally two different motivations. And you almost see like one that, that does the art for the art wants to, you know, he lives in this world in his mind and wants to share it almost in a sense of joy, I guess. And then the other one is if the, if the motives are correct, he just did it for money. I mean, those are two, those are two different worldviews right there. Yeah. Well, and those things are borne out in the, in the work that they created, you know? I mean, yeah. I think you yeah. can go to a uh, book like Lord of the Rings, which, and then this one podcast, like, I, one of the 
uh, the guys in it made a really great point that he thinks the Lord of the Rings will just be absorbed into the literary canon. It won't be a fantasy novel. It will necessarily, it will be part of the, the world literature canon um, on, standing on its own as a work of art, as a work of fiction, rather than just being... You mean like Shakespearean works? Or? Right, yeah, okay. like like or Charles Dickens or, yeah. uh, you know, whatever uh, other work we considered part or part of the literary canon uh moby dig yeah i think he, i think it already is i mean you know my view i think is the book of the 20th century so right right i mean i think it already is i mean look how many scholars there are in oh you know the, here's the other thing i was going to say from the shippy article that i just remembered tolkien and this kind of it was with what we were talking about just the books being more sorrowful than the movies and and the reason he gives for that is that uh, Tolkien was just a, a much more serious person than the kinds of people we have today. He was just a much harder person, emotionally, you know, not super concerned with other people's feelings in the same way people are today, you know. And uh, I mean, I think that kind of bears out in the story as well. There is kind of a... I want to say an aloofness, but because that's not right, but it's, uh, it's got an edge. It's got an edge to it. That isn't, that is an edge that is neither dangerous necessarily or evil or gritty. It's a, uh, like a, I don't know how to describe this, but it's more like a, um, a sense of duty, I guess would be the, I guess would be the best way to put it. Yeah. You see that in Sam, he's the Batman or the, you know, the English soldier. And cl- clearly, there's you know his wartime experiences have have influenced his writing. But I like what you said just a second ago. He has an has an edge, and kind of a grittiness, but it doesn't go into the excruciating depravity of detail, where you know there's evil out there and evil is real, but it doesn't like focus on the evil, where it almost seems like in a lot of stories today. They will admit that evil is real and it's out there and it's the bad guy that should be defeated, but they almost like glamorize it and they show like the the wonders of evil. But then in the end, the good guy wins. <laughs> Where it's almost like there's absolutely no question in in the Lord of the Rings that the ring has to be destroyed, and the one guy who takes it dies, tries to take it dies, right? It's it's like you mess with fire and you're gonna get burned kind of thing. It's that that's that Christian worldview coming right through right absolutely but i like what you said it has that edge but it doesn't go into this crazy detail of the evil right right well and i mean game of thrones has an edge too but it's a different kind it's not like a strong like moral sense of duty it's not like a a rock that breaks the the waves it's now i haven't read it um but it's more like i guess the glorification of anti-hero it's not it, the Lord of the Rings doesn't have an edge like an antihero. It has the edge of like Christian knight, you know, or yeah. um Yeah, you have to go in know, and do battle. Right. You have to yeah, it yeah, it's uh not like a winsome youth pastor who wears tight jeans, you know, <laughs> it's like you know, it's like a strong Christian knight, you know, that's what yeah. No, I, I get what you mean. Yeah, there's a seriousness to it, but I think the I think the films carry some of that. There, you know, there's that scene that Faramir takes the hobbits to Osgiliath, 
which we've already talked about, we disagree with narratively, but, you know, Sam gives that speech, which part of it is from the book, I think, and part of it's kind of adapted, and it's pretty serious. And he's given the speech about hope, but you see people fighting and dying in the, in the montage there. And so, yeah, there is seriousness, but I don't think it's as serious as the book. And you almost wonder if that's, I'll say two things. One is, you almost wonder they don't go too far because it's a film. You want to play on the emotions, but you don't want to kill the emotions in the audience. Two, can our modern audiences handle that stuff now? I, I, that, so that film's 20-something years old now. I think they could handle it more, but now, like today, I noticed if like a main character dies, he'll show up immediately again. So, for example, I think of... Let me give two examples. One is the horrible Star Trek Into Darkness movie where they kill off Kirk, and then two minutes later, he's... He's revived again, and almost like his sacrifice. You're like, uh, okay, that there was no cost. And then Tony Stark. Now that there's a real true sacrifice there, but three minutes later, you see a hologram of him talking to Pepper or whatever her name is, and it's right. like, is that the end at the end of Endgame? Yeah, it's like or I think after his funeral scene or something. You don't, you know, you see the hologram, and I'm, and I'm like. And, and I keep seeing this happen, and I'm trying to remember all the examples, but I, I've seen it, where a character is dead, and you're extremely upset about it because, you know, you've invested in the character, and you should be upset, and then they go and have, like, a ghost or hologram show up to, like, lessen the blow, as if the audience can't, audiences can't take it right. anymore. Yeah. Like the force ghost. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then the third point, I said there was going to be two, but the third point is... The films aren't as serious as the movie, I mean the books, but there is some seriousness to them. And you wonder, I don't know Jackson's backstory or his life, but what experiences did he have that he knew that he had to have some tone of seriousness in it and didn't keep it all completely lighthearted. And you just wonder if it was made today by a different director, would it be as serious? Yeah, you know, that's a really good, I guess we'll see in a couple of weeks whether or not um, they will be able to... Yeah, because... Give us that. that I mean, that second age stuff is pretty, pretty grim stories. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, there is the, you know, again, there's just like that. There's this feeling, it's the sense in the books that you're just like not going to get it all back. Well, like, they don't. It's just, yeah, there's a triumph, but Frodo still has all these wounds, you know, that he still, he still feels the pain on the anniversary of the, the wounds. And well, that's the, the message you can't go home again. And the, the Shire gets wiped out pretty much in the books, which they eliminate in the movies, which, yeah, that's, I see why they did it eliminated in the movies. You know, you have the, the narrative climax, the ring is destroyed. You're now you're going down from there. And to add another conflict, you know, that would, that wouldn't work in our modern filmmaking. But in the books, I mean, it's like, it's highlighting that point you just said that you, you can't go home again. There's so much evil touches everything and scars it even from afar. Even after the victory has been won, there's still these pieces to pick up. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, I thought it was a really good article. Yeah, it was. I think you wrote it in 2010. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, one, one, one other thing. Um, one more thing. He did say he thought that uh, Peter Jackson handled the quiet scenes really well. He had the action scenes, and, and I think that's actually really true. I totally agree with that. I don't think I've ever seen. Peter Jackson able to really do that again in a movie. I just, 
I've never, I mean, not in the same way. I think he does it a couple times in the Hobbit films, actually. He does it in the, the riddles in the dark scene with Gollum and Bilbo. That is an incredible scene. And he does it again when Thorin dies. Right. Right. I think, I think he nails it there, but you know, the Hobbit itself is not the, the Hobbit gets darker as it goes on, but it's not as doesn't have the depth that the Lord of the Rings has. So I don't think the movies could either if he's trying to be as faithful as, well, he wasn't faithful, but anyways, that's a different story. Right, right. Um, but just, I mean, his other movies too, like King Kong or... Uh... Yeah, but see, this is where, so, you know, that book you told me, the what is it, The Making of Middle-Earth? Yeah, was? yeah. I didn't never realize that the Lord of the Rings films, they're really independent movies with blockbuster budget. Yeah, that's true. Like yeah. they had hands off from the studio for the most part, and and so I think when Jackson got his money, studio got his hands in there, or he became corrupted by all the money or whatever, and so he lost some of that that uh, directing ability to keep things quiet and nuanced. And yeah, that's very true. They're very much uh, indie indie films, um, and just in the industry at large, from what I remember. Um, watching a lot of movies in the 90s like indie movies were championed that was a man you went you went out on your own you struck out on your own you uh maxed out all your credit cards to make a movie and then you put it all up in at sundance and like you were a hero you know you were a hero you didn't get to have all the things that you wanted maybe you didn't have a crane or even a dolly maybe your actors were really amateurish but by golly, you took your vision and cast it to, to, to film. And I just don't, that independent spirit, I don't know if I see that anymore. No, uh, you got, movies are costing so much to make, even small ones, unless you're, you know, extremely small. And uh, so, and, and then the franchises don't want to take any risks. And unless you can, unless you're like Tom Cruise and can bankroll whatever movie you want, you can't. So, yeah. There's, so I want to go back to that briefly, and then I guess we could wrap up. Um, the quiet scenes in the Council, the Council of Elrond in the movie, I'm always like struck, you know, when they're all yelling and I'll, blah, you can't take the ring, and then Fro- you hear Frodo's voice in the background, I'll take it. Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. they take there's the shot of Gandalf, and his mm-hmm. eyes c- close real slowly, and his whole face and it's incredible acting from Ian McKellen, mm-hmm. but his whole face slumps like. No, why did you say that, Frodo? You don't know what you just said, kind of thing. I know what you just said, and I know what's going to happen, and I don't want this for you. And it's all like, it's all right there in one shot. And it's like, that's great directing, great acting, all right, right there. And you just get so much across from that. And I, I always remember that shot. It's just really good, really done very well. Yeah, I mean, there were just something, I mean, we may not agree with everything that he did on those movies but or maybe uh, and maybe he didn't even get to the core of the narrative maybe he did maybe he didn't but i mean what an achievement i mean he got so close and he did there's so much about those movies that are just wonderful all right well thank you for listening i encourage you to go read that uh, essay by tom shippey i'll leave a link to the document in the show notes Be sure to subscribe and uh, be on the lookout for the next podcast. Mm